We're going to have our Bible reading now. Um, this morning we're reading Psalm 5, which is on page 544. I'll just give you a minute to find your page. Psalm 5. For the director of music, for flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my sighing. Listen to my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. In the morning, O Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my requests before you and wait in expectation. You are not a God who takes pleasure in evil. With you, the wicked cannot dwell. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men, the Lord abhors. But I, by your great mercy, will come into your house. In reverence will I bow down towards your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make straight your way before me. Not a word from their mouth can be trusted. Their heart is filled with destruction. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongue they speak deceit. Declare them guilty, O God. Let their intrigues be their downfall. Banish them for their many sins, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may rejoice in you. For surely, O Lord, you bless the righteous. You surround them with your favour as with a shield. Thanks, Sean. Do keep that um, passage open. And there's a a simple outline in your sheets if you'd like to follow on. Imagine this with me. What if you had a friend in your life who was always ready to listen whenever you needed to talk? What if that friend had a home where you were always welcome? The door was always open, the kettle was always on, you felt safe there and accepted. What if that friend had pledged to protect you in all circumstances? They always had your back when times were rough. What if that friend were able to give you wise and good advice that could always be trusted? Perhaps some of you do have friends that are a bit like that, although I imagine no one gets close to that ideal. What would you call it if you had it? Friendship? Family? Home? Would you be tempted to call it heaven? Now, I'd like you to imagine the reverse. What if you had someone in your life who you desperately wanted to know, but they wanted nothing to do with you? They block you on social media, they ignore your texts, they don't return your calls. When you go around to visit, the door is slammed in your face, and if they saw you in trouble, they wouldn't lift a finger. I hope um, that you've never experienced that level of relationship breakdown, although perhaps some here have. What would you call it? You might be close to calling it hell. 
Well, in this psalm, both of those two realities are described, and David alternates between the two. I wonder if you noticed that as Sean read. We'll hear about a joyful, heavenly relationship and a broken, hellish one. But the relationship in view is no ordinary human friendship or human enmity. We're going to explore two different relationships with the living and powerful God of the universe. The one in this psalm who David calls Lord, that is Yahweh, the I am who I am, the creator and sovereign over all things. Now that raises the stakes somewhat, doesn't it? If we have the first kind of relationship with this God, that puts all the hardships and difficulties of life into perspective. It would mean that we would have a friend who is closer than a brother. It would mean guidance for life from heaven itself. It would mean hope and security, and confidence for the future. But if we have the second kind of relationship with this God, that also puts life here and now into perspective. Because no matter how good things get in this life, no matter how healthy our human relationships, no matter how successful our careers or comfortable our homes, the most fundamental relationship in life, that between us and our sovereign creator, is out of kilter. And that means that no matter how bad things get in this life, nothing can compare to the suffering of having the God of the universe slam the door in your face and throw you out of his presence forever. The stakes really couldn't be higher this morning. The most important question we will ever face is before us. The most important relationship to get right, it really is a matter of life and death. And David in this psalm claims to have got this question sorted. Not everything in David's life is easy, far from it. In verses 1 and 2, he's sighing and crying out for help. He is surrounded by enemies, he's suffering. But notice who he is crying out to. In verse 1, he calls God Lord, in capitals, that's that word Yahweh, the name which God revealed to Israel, which as well as signifying God's power, also speaks of his covenant love and commitment to his people. In verse 2, David calls God my king and my God. He claims personal and good relationship with him. And in verse 3, David says that he is utterly convinced that as he cries out, God is listening to his prayers. Look at verse 3 with me. In the morning, O Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my request before you and wait in expectation. David waits in eager eager hope and expectation of an answer to his cry. David prays, even from the midst of his hardship, excitedly and expectantly, he has complete confidence that he's in good relationship with the powerful God of the universe. As we go through this psalm, we'll see he is confident of his welcome with God and confident of his deliverance by God. And so the question before us this morning is very simple. Can we have that confidence too? Well, let's begin by examining one part of David's confidence, the king's Welcome. It sounds like the children were all in bed by midnight, but I assume that some people last night had a bit of a party. They want to have friends around to see in the new year and stay up and watch fireworks and things like that. Well, we did not. I cannot function past around 10 p.m., so it doesn't really work for us. But on your, your New Year's party guest list, what sort of people did you invite? Who made it onto the guest list? Who did you want to spend several hours of your life with? Or, if you were invited to a New Year's party, did you find yourself wondering, I wonder wonder who else is going to be there? 
Did you quietly try to find out before you accepted the invitation or not? We've all done it, you know, there's no shame in it. Um, well, there's a bit of shame in it. Um, you see, there are people, aren't there, who we find it easier to spend time with. And there are people, frankly, who we, who we struggle with, who we find a bit disagreeable. Well, here we're asking the question, who makes it onto God's guest list? Not just for a party. Who gets to live with God? Who does he want to spend not just a few hours with, but the rest of eternity with? Well, one answer might go like this. God is a powerful God, and therefore he will want to surround himself with other powerful people. That's what happens in our world, doesn't it? At the recent World Cup in Qatar, the TV cameras gave us several shots into the private boxes at the various stadiums. And we were treated to the the rich and the powerful and the famous hanging out together with the emir of Qatar and the various sheikhs and other rulers. And many people watching this, the commentators, expressed something of distaste towards this because of the cruelty and the brutality of the regime in Qatar, and yet those guys have power. And so they're able to gather around themselves powerful, impressive people from other walks of life. I'm sure they had a great time. Is that how God puts together his guest list? Well, look at verse 4 with me. You are not a God who takes pleasure in evil. With you, the wicked cannot dwell. The answer is no. God is not interested in power. He's interested in character. God is a powerful God, but he's a powerfully righteous God. He's a powerfully good God. Evil cannot dwell with such a God. Elsewhere, the Bible uses the metaphor of God being light and evil being darkness. And once the light is on, the darkness is banished. They're opposites. They they cannot coexist. But in this psalm, we see that we're not talking about some abstract mechanism here, some idea of good and evil, where it's some automatic incompatibility like oil and water. No, God's antipathy to evil is relational and it's personal. And we're going to probably find some of this language difficult. Perhaps you found it hard as Sham was reading it, but we must let the Bible speak for itself. We must let God tell us what he's like in his own words, and we must adapt our thinking to his rather than trying to force him into our own mould. So look with me at verse 5 to 6 and see how God uh, thinks of evil. Verse 5. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men, the Lord abhors. Four types of people are described here. The, The headline for all four, I think, is the first one, the arrogant. At the very top of the list of people whom God does not invite to spend time with him are the boastful, those who exalt themselves above God and his king, those who big themselves up, and those who gloat over the downfall of others. We've already met some of these people in David's story, haven't we, when we looked at 2 Samuel last year now. Uh, Men like Absalom and Shimei usurping the king, rejoicing over David's humiliation. And actually, although it's slightly hidden in translation, these people make a reappearance in verse 8. There the word translated, my enemies, literally means those who watch me. We get the picture of them gleefully watching every one of David's steps, longing for a mistake, hoping that he will fall and they will prosper because of it. The arrogance, the first people on the list. Then we have in verse 5, those who do wrong. This speaks of a lifestyle characterized by sin. In verse 10, David speaks of those who've committed many 
sins, literally an abundance of sins. In verse 6, we have those who tell lies. And finally, in verse 6, bloodthirsty and deceitful men. Now, we might look on this list, arrogant, lying, bloodthirsty sinners, and think, well, they just sound like truly awful people. Our minds might quickly go to the Putins and the Kim Jong-uns of this world, to the Absaloms and the Shimeis, and we might think, well, of course, (laughs) of course God doesn't want such people anywhere near him. And yet in the second description of these people in verse 9, things get a little closer to home and they get a little more uncomfortable. Look at those verses with me. And notice that David focused on one one particular characteristic of these wicked people, and that's their speech. Verse 9, Not a word from their mouth can be trusted. Their heart is filled with destruction. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongue they speak deceit. See, David hears their words and from that diagnoses the state of their hearts. Their words bring no solid truth or comfort, but rather lies. And so if you were to rely on them as a guide for your life, you would perish. And that's because they come out of a heart which seeks to tear others down. And for that reason, we have this extraordinary image of their throats being open graves, When they open their mouths, what comes out has the stench of death about it. Their speech does not come from a heart of love and truth and life, but rather a heart of destruction, and so it brings death to all who would listen. Now, if you're a Bible reader, this should probably remind you of a few things. Perhaps it takes you back to the Garden of Eden, to the first lie, the first attempt to deceive and to bring death, the serpent enticing Eve, manipulating her with subtle and crafty untruths about God and about herself and setting mankind on the path to destruction. But it also takes us forward in the Bible. If you are a regular reader of the New Testament, this should make you squirm a little bit. Do you recognize some of this language? David speaks about words coming out of a heart which is filled with destruction Well, this is precisely what Jesus said in Mark 7 when he explained the problem with all mankind. It's not that there is a problem out there somewhere that sort of gets inside us and ruins us. No, listen to Jesus' words on the screen. Jesus went on, What comes out of a man is what makes him unclean. From from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. You see that the similarity between those, that list that Jesus gives and the list in verses 5 and 6. Arrogance, deceit, murder, slander, lies. And you see the same source, the human heart. And because of that, Paul was able to quote this psalm in his explanation for why all mankind are under the wrath of God in Romans 3, where he said their hearts, their throats, sorry, are open graves. So if our minds go to Putin and Absalom when we read those who are not welcoming God's presence, we need to cast the net wider. Think back to that list in verse 5 and 6 again. Have you ever used your words to boast, to hurt others, to lie to your own advantage, to manipulate, to self-promote? 
I have. These are things that God never does. He takes no pleasure in those things at all. And for that reason, he cannot live with those who do. They are not welcome with him. In fact, it gets stronger than that. Look at the language David uses to describe God's attitude to such people in verses 5 to 6. He says, verse 5, that they cannot stand in God's presence. That is the language of the courtroom. That is the language of a guilty verdict pronounced over them. They have no legal case. They are found guilty. They are condemned. In verse 5, God hates evildoers. In verse 6, he abhors them. Now, we have to be careful not to assume that God's hate is the same as ours. Our hate, my hate, human hate, is often a vicious, visceral, uncontrolled, ugly thing, isn't it? Now, that is not the same as what the Bible means when it says God hates. God is never uncontrolled. He's always calm and just and settled in his affections. But the Bible still uses this word. It still uses the words hate and abhors, and we have to take that language seriously. God, we, we might say, has a very strong dislike and aversion. We might even say a repulsion towards the wicked. If I can put it like this, he cannot stand to have them anywhere near him. And so, verse 6, he will destroy them. This is not just a personal dislike, but a judicial sentence. See, God is not simply looking for people who he likes to come to his party. He is looking for people who can inhabit and rule and care for his world with goodness and righteousness and purity. And God's world cannot bear the presence of godless people forever. This is what the Bible calls hell. The door to joy and light and life and God the giver of all things slammed in the face forever. But if that is true, then who can be welcome? If all of us find ourselves in that list of sinners, and God has that same settled anger and antipathy towards all sinners, and God does not play favorites, then how can anyone stand? How can David possibly have the confidence he has in verses 1 to 3? Well, the amazing answer is in verse 7. David in verse 7 describes how he can be assured of welcome into God's presence. Look at it with me. But I, by your great mercy, will come into your house. In reverence will I bow down towards your holy temple. In verse 10, David talks about an abundance of transgression and transgressions. And here he uses the same word, the abundance word. But what is he talking about? Not as we might expect. He's making a contrast, isn't he, between himself and the wicked people. He doesn't say, they've got the abundance of, tra- of transgressions, but I, through the abundance of my righteousness, will enter your presence. He doesn't say, I, through the abundance of my good works, will bow down towards your holy temple. No, what does he say? He says, the abundance of your mercy. God's covenant love, that chesed that we met a few weeks ago. That is why he can come into God's presence. David's confidence is wholly reliant on the grace of God. That is, I think, why David in that verse speaks of his reverence to God, his holy fear of him, why he bows down in an attitude of humility. It's because he knows he is as undeserving as any. David, too, is a liar. And a murderous man, as we well know, he too has used his words to destroy. And so here is the great paradox 
of the Bible, the great surprise of relationship with God. It is that the key to confidence about our relationship with God is complete confidence that we don't deserve it. The path to assurance with God goes through despair about our own sin and therefore total reliance on his grace. On the flip side, those who are completely sure of their own goodness and confident in their own righteousness find themselves on the top of the list of the uninvited in verse 5, called the arrogant. But as David falls on his face before God, humbly acknowledging his sin, casting himself on God's mercy, he finds, astonishingly, that he's welcome. The door which was slammed shut in anger in the faces of sinners is flung open in grace to welcome those same sinners once they fall on their knees in repentance. This is the grounds for David's confidence in his relationship with God. Not his righteousness, but God's mercy. And yet, how is that possible? How can the righteous God, who cannot look upon evil, welcome sinners like David? Well, let's see as we examine the king's deliverance. King's deliverance. Remember with me that David is under threat as he writes this psalm. He is sighing and crying for help because he is oppressed by the wicked men who he's writing about here. We saw the kind of thing in 2 Samuel, didn't we? King David has powerful enemies who are using their words to manipulate, like his son Absalom, stealing the hearts of all Israel. Or to destroy, like Shimei, screaming abuse at him. Or to lie, like Ziba, pretending to be on David's side while secretly plotting against him. And although David acknowledges that he is no better than they, he too is a sinner, yet in this case their accusations about him are false. He is being unjustly slandered and embattled, and so he is justified in crying out to God for deliverance from those enemies. Now again, some of this language is probably going to be hard for us to hear. We're going to read David calling out for justice and indeed judgment on his enemies. And perhaps the reason we find that hard is that we in our country, in our society, are not particularly hard-pressed by enemies, I don't think. I think some of our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world might resonate more easily with this language. But we'll look at it closely together. We'll consider what it means. We'll start in verse 10. Look at that with me, and notice with me the motive and the method of the deliverance that David is crying out for. Verse 10. Declare them guilty, O God's. Let their intrigues be their downfall. Banish them for their many sins, for they've rebelled against you. Look at the motive, look at the method. When we are under the cosh a bit, when we feel attacked by people, when we are unfairly accused, our temptation could be to think, well, I'm angry and I'm annoyed because people are being mean, so I'm going to lash out. Our motive is often, I just don't like it, And our method is often, so I'm going to sort it out. Our way of righting wrongs can be self-centered and vindictive, can't it? But that is not how David is thinking in this psalm. His motive is not about himself. Did you notice that? At the end of verse 10, he reveals his heart. He is calling for justice on those who rebelled against you. David's concern is for the glory of the Lord's. These people's speech is destructive to God's people and it's an insult against God himself. And so he cries out to God for their speech to be silenced. 
And we have to remember the context of this psalm. Remember Psalm 2 at the beginning of the book that we looked at a long time ago now. There we learn that there is always hope for the enemies of God. Repentance is always a possibility. If they lay down their arms and pay homage to the Son of God King, then they too will be welcomed as David has been. But we also learn that it is the Son of God King who has the right to pronounce judgment on the enemies of God. And so here we see King David, his method is not to take matters into his own hands, is it? But it is to ask God to bring his judgment ahead of time on God's own enemies. It's a profoundly God-centered call for justice. They have offended against you, so please will you bring your justice. And so notice with me how it happens, how that judgment comes in verse 10. I was very much helped to understand these verses by the commentator Derek Kidner. He noticed that three things are happening in verse 10. Would you notice it with me? First, there is exposure. He says, declare them guilty, O Lord. You see, evil may prosper for a while. We know that, don't we? The powerful may get away with it for years and years and years. But in the courtroom of God, the true sentence is pronounced. They are declared guilty. Their deeds are exposed for what they truly are. See, evil is always vulnerable to the truth. People may hide their wickedness, but not forever. Sometimes in this life we see that happen, don't we? People are found out and exposed and cast down. Sometimes it doesn't happen, but always in the life to come, our evil deeds will one day be finally revealed and exposed. Second, there is collapse. The second line of verse 10, let their intrigues be their downfall. See, evil is an inherently unstable thing. It's an attempt to work against God in a world which is made and ruled by God. And therefore, even if it works for a time, it is always fragile and it is always foolish. You see it when people are caught out as criminals, don't you, in our world in the news. They push it a little bit too far. They take one risk too many, and it all just unravels in an instant. And people shake their head and say, well, how could they be so stupid? Well, sin is always stupid. It's always a foolish way to live in God's world. And so sooner or later, the badly built tower will come crashing down. Evil is vulnerable to its own instability. Third, there is expulsion. Banish them for their many sins. If the truth remains hidden, if the tower of sin remains standing, if all goes well for the wicked in this life, then evil is still vulnerable to God's direct judgment. The door finally slammed in the face forever. Now, we might not like hearing this at the start of a new year. We may not like hearing it at any time. I certainly don't enjoy talking about it. But think back to that image we started with. That beautiful picture of a safe haven, a friend who has your back, protection and refuge and welcome. That's where we started and that's where this psalm ends. In verse 11 and 12, David talks about God being his refuge, his protection, his shield. We saw a little glimpse of heaven there, didn't we? But do you see that without verses 9 to 10, verses 11 to 12 can't happen. Without the exposure and the collapse and the expulsion of wickedness, then evil will remain a threat forever. And therefore there can be no hope, there can be no refuge, there can be no security, finally. For people to dwell in goodness, evil must be dealt with. Without judgment on wickedness, there can be no final victory 
for goods. Without hell, there can be no heaven. And so finally, there must be God's justice. There must be God's judgment on a wicked world if there is to be a final refuge for those who have cast themselves on God's mercy. However, it is not only deliverance from his enemies that is David's goal. He actually has another deliverance in mind as well. Look back with me at verse 8 and see what David prays for there. He says, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make straight your way before me. Surrounded by enemies, what does David pray for? Before he prays for their own downfall, he prays for his own heart. Surrounded by the lies of wicked men, David wants to hear truth from God about how to live well, about straight paths that he can walk on. He doesn't just want to flee to the temple for physical refuge, but he wants to walk with God. He wants to enjoy God's presence, to walk in his ways. He needs God to keep him on straight and righteous paths. You see, deliverance from enemies is all very well and it must happen. But David's concern is not just that he is delivered from them, but that he's delivered from being like them. If David is harmed by unrepentantly boastful and bloodthirsty men, well, that is bad. But the consequences are as nothing compared to David becoming an unrepentantly boastful and bloodthirsty man. That is why when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he gave them both types of deliverance to pray for. Your kingdom come, your will be done, is a prayer for the world to be made right. It's a prayer for the banishment of evil from the world. It's a prayer for deliverance. But then Jesus tells his disciples to pray, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil. Deliverance from our enemies is good. Deliverance from ourselves is better. Look at verse 11 to 12 again. We saw there that refuge and protection and safety is available once final judgment has come. But notice there who it comes to. It comes to, verse 11, fourth line down, fifth line down, those who love your name, who have been delivered not only from their enemies out there, but also from the enmity that is in their own hearts, who've been transformed from being arrogant and self-centered to, being hum- to humbly taking refuge in God's mercy and loving his name and loving his glory. So we ask again, how can that happen? How can we have confidence that in the final analysis we will be counted as those who've taken refuge in God and therefore can enjoy his deliverance rather than being those who face God's banishment? We've already seen the answer. It's by God's grace. It's by his mercy. Verse 12 confirms it. Do you see that it says, you bless the righteous, you surround them with your favor as with a shield. That word favor speaks of God's grace. It's his grace that is the answer. But to get a fuller answer, to understand how it happens, we need to go beyond this psalm to see its fulfillment. I wonder if you noticed that pattern that I told you to look out for at the beginning of the series, if you were here, where a psalm starts with the king in trouble, and then the king gets delivered halfway through the psalm, and it results in blessing for a whole group of people. It moves from the individual to the corporate, to the group, to the assembly, to to the family. 
We have that same pattern here, don't we? At the beginning, it's all about David's individual singing and crying. It's his cry. He is calling out for deliverance. He lays out his individual request to God. He waits for eager longing for the result. It's all about him, isn't it? But at the end, when the judgment has come, when the enemies are defeated, who is given refuge? Not just David, not just the king, but verse 11, all who take refuge in God. Verse 11, all who love your name. Not just David, the one asking to be led in righteousness, but verse 12, all those who are counted righteous along with him. You see, the king's deliverance is not just the king's deliverance. It's the deliverance of all who align themselves with the king, all who belong to the king. And so the fulfillment of this psalm, as every psalm, as every word of the Old Testament is found in Jesus. Jesus who is a, a bit like David, but so much greater. Jesus who had no sin of his own to rule him out of God's guest list. Jesus who could always, for all eternity, find a home with his heavenly Father by right. Who always enjoyed the perfect, sweetest relationship with him. Jesus who never in his heart departed from God's ways, nor in his speech, nor in his actions. And yet Jesus who came to earth to be counted as an enemy of God. Jesus who willingly bore the hatred of God on the cross, who felt the door slam in his face, who was treated as the worst of sinners, even as he behaved better than the best of men. And yet Jesus who was delivered. Even as his enemies crowed their victory, Jesus defeated them. He rose from the grave triumphant over death to be welcomed back into the throne room of heaven to take his place as the true son of God king with all authority to destroy evil fully and finally one day. And it is this Jesus, the delivered king, who offers us the king's deliverance. It is this Jesus, the welcome king, who offers us the king's welcome. Because he has borne and exhausted their hatred of God in himself. He can extend the love of God to sinners like you and me. He can transform our hearts from arrogance to humility, from boastfulness to repentance. By the gift of his Holy Spirit, he can begin to change us to walk in his ways. To be delivered not only from our enemies one day, but also from ourselves. We can start to become people who love God's name and who love God's glory more than we love our own. And he can give us, therefore, confidence. Confidence in our relationship with God, the sure knowledge that we have a friend who is closer than a brother, who has our back, who works for our goods, who will always welcome us home. Just before he died, Jesus prayed a prayer. Simon's already helped us think about that prayer earlier this morning. I want to read you some of the words of that prayer, just just before the ones that Simon quoted for us. Listen to what Jesus the King prays for his people in John 17. I'm not going to read every word of Jesus' prayer. Do look it up in your own time. But listen to these words on the screen. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your words. Now they know that everything you've given me comes from you, for I gave them the words you gave me and they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. 
While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that scripture would be fulfilled. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. You see, King Jesus in his prayer there, thinking of the people who bowed their knee to him, those who become his people by grace, and he prays for their protection, for their joy, he prays for their deliverance, he prays for their welcome. And so it's his prayer, fulfilling David's prayer in Psalm 5, that God will be pleased to answer. So as we conclude, let me ask you, as we look to 2023, as we look to the future, what future are you confident of? What can you expect in the life to come? Well, there are two options, and everything depends on how you respond to King Jesus. See, if you reject him, if you take your stand against him, then you will not stand before him. What you have in your future is, as it says in verse 10, exposure, collapse, and expulsion. But if you accept him, if you have the humility to bow before him and ask for his mercy, then a very different future awaits. A confident future, the king's deliverance and the king's welcome. And I wonder if you spotted the difference between verse 10 and verse 11. Verse 10 has a threefold call for the wicked. We saw it, didn't we? Exposure, collapse, expulsion. Well, verse 11 also has a threefold call. What does the king ask for the people who love God's name? Verse 11, let them be glad. Verse 11 again, let them sing for joy. End of verse 11, let them rejoice in you. The choice is before all of us, it's a choice we must make every day. Reject the king and face exposure, collapse, expulsion. Accept the king and rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. I'll give you a moment to reflect on those words and then we'll say the words of Psalm 5 altogether. Let's pray to our God using the words that he's given us. Beginning at verse 1, let's pray these words together. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my sighing. Listen to my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. In the morning, O Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning I lay my requests before you and wait in expectation. You are not a God who takes pleasure in evil. With you the wicked cannot dwell. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men, the Lord abhors. But I, by your great mercy, will come into your house. In reverence will I bow down towards your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make straight your way before me. 
Not a word from their mouth can be trusted. Their heart is filled with destruction. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongue they speak deceit. Declare them guilty, O God. Let their intrigues be their downfall. Banish them for their many sins, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may rejoice in you. For surely, O Lord, you bless the righteous. You surround them with your favour as with a shield.